Are you ready to change your life, your mind, and change the way you see your world? Well, this is the Minds Gym Podcast with myself, Brandon Bickmore, your turbo lover. And here we go. This is Brandon Bickmore, your turbo lover with the Minds Gym Podcast, back again with a, a little more information on one of, a, one of the neatest human beings I've ever met in my life. Uh, I met about probably 20 years ago. Um, a good, good buddy of mine. His act, name is Danny Vrains. Um, played for the University of Utah. He's actually my wife's cousin. Played for the University of Utah running Utes back from 1978 to 1981. Played on the U.S. Olympic team and uh, played in the, actually in the NBA. He was inducted into the Pac-12 Men's Basketball um, Hall of Honor in March. Uh, one of just seven players to have his number retired by the Utes. And uh, he was named an All-American in 1981. He was a four-time All-Western Athletic Conference honoree and a member of Utah's All-Century team. He led the Utes to three NCAA tournament appearances, including two to the Sweet 16. Uh, the Utes won a Western Athletic Conference title during Reigns' senior year and, and ended the season ranked 14th in the nation. And he also played in the 1979 Pan American Games uh, in San Juan where he helped the United States win the gold medal. Uh, He was selected number five overall in the first round in the 1981 NBA draft by the Seattle Supersonics. And he played seven seasons uh, in the NBA, and he was named to the all-defensive team in 1985. During his career, he played in 510 NBA games, scored 2,613 points. And he also uh, went on to play basketball uh, for four years in Greece and Italy, and he now lives in Salt Lake City, Utah. Um, This guy was the golden boy of our era back in the day, and uh, I'm sure he had some high expectations that were put on him. Uh, This is one of the kindest human beings I've ever met. I used to own a door and molding company, as you guys all know, that... uh, about put me in the grave, and uh, I mentioned that in an earlier podcast, but this is one of the builders I sold to for 15 or 18 years that was, uh, I was actually excited to answer the phone when he called. He's a very kind human being, and he treated me um, as an equal instead of a less than, and I've always looked up to this guy, and uh, and I'm absolutely thrilled to be able to have him on the show and uh, uh uh, hear a little bit about his life and, and, and his story. So how are you today, Danny? I am good. Thanks for having me here. Of course. So tell us a little bit about yourself and uh, and and growing up. Um, did you play all sports growing up, or did you just focus on basketball as a young kid? No, I played pretty much everything back in the day, football, baseball, basketball, ran track and field, um, so I did a little bit of everything, but it wasn't until my senior year in high school that I, I just concentrated on basketball. Yeah, was basketball your favorite sport? Yeah, yeah, for sure, yeah. absolutely. It's the one where you uh, were excited to practice. You didn't stress out about. Practicing. I'm about excited about practice. You know how that goes. <laughs> it's a lot of a lot of work, a lot of running. You want to play. You want to get out there and, and scrimmage or whatnot. But uh, sometimes practice is. You know, we're tough, but that was part of it. And, and uh, always excited to get the season going. And yeah. here we are now in uh, almost October, which is typically when basketball season starts or training camp or, or whatever. And so you can uh, you can just remember the feeling that's yeah. in the air when it's time to, to, to ramp it up. Cool. So uh, uh, you went to Skyline High School. Um, 
Bill Marcroft said that uh, when you were a sophomore that he believed you were going to play in the NBA, and it's the first time he's, I think he said he was able to say that about a, uh, a player from the state of Utah. Do you remember that quote? I know Mark Ruff said a lot of things back in the day. <laughs> Mark Ruff was one of my, my big fans and uh, obviously an incredible talent on the radio for the, for the Utes and good friend. And Yeah, he was, he was uh, touting me way back in the day. I was like, this, this guy know what he's talking about, but yeah. it was fun. That's what I wondered. Did, did you believe that you would go to the NBA as, NBA as a sophomore, junior in high school? Did you think you had the potential? Believe and, and want are two different things. You know, you obviously dreamed and wanted, but, you know, you never really know how you're going to stack up against those guys. And those guys are so much up on a pedestal, and, and it's tough to really believe for sure you're going to be there. Um, certainly wanted to, and that was my, my dream. So you you weren't necessarily like, man, I'm going to play in the NBA. You just... I mean, nobody, I, I couldn't tell you for sure that I knew that, yeah. um, but... Uh, but did you think you might? Yeah. I mean, yeah. I thought I had a chance. I thought, I thought if I had a shot. Um, kept developing, and, and uh, obviously I had certain skills that, you know, it was just a matter of, you know, working every day and, and uh, you know, having that passion to want to want to be there. When did you, uh, like, explain to me, you know, you're, he's six seven. By the way, when did you grow? Like, were you a sophomore, junior, freshman? When did you get uh, No, I tall? was always just tall. Uh, you always. know, I never really had a big growth spurt, but I was, you know, I was always tall. I was 6'7", as tall as I am now, my sophomore year in high school. Never grew anymore. Really? Yeah. So you were 6'7", at 16 years old. Yeah. Damn. Yeah. Yeah. And not like growing into that, like so. Your freshman were you six two, six three, six four? Did no, I was probably in ninth grade. I was probably six five, six really? five and a half. Yeah, I was. I was just always tall. Yeah. Oh. So I mean, I was could dunk in seventh grade because I was six three, six four in seventh grade. Yeah. I didn't know you were that tall that young. Yeah. Yeah. That's incredible. So you had a growth spurt when you were a. A uh, ten-year-old. I don't know when, I, when it all happened, but I just—I was boy. I was mean and lean. I was. Uh, I think I graduated high school at 165 pounds. I was at six seven. Yeah. Wow. Not a physical specimen by any means. Damn. And what was your work ethic like? Like you knew you had a shot. How hard did you actually work growing up as a kid when you kind of had the idea that you might have a shot? Yeah, I think when you're a kid. Um, <laughs> When you say work, you know it was it was more fun back then. When you're 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 training yourself, it was just constantly, uh, you know, going to the gym or in my case, uh, finding a, a game. I I was uh, had a, my dad had a we had a driveway and a basketball hoop, and it from elementary school on. I remember going out and you know every day, rain or shine, shoveling the snow off, uh, just having a blast. And really enjoyed, and I really believe developed more uh, practicing individually. Hmm. Just working on individual things from whatever it was, ball handling to shooting to da 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 whatever moves. Yeah. But I was also blessed to have uh, three cousins that were my age that were great um, athletes. And I was driven really to be as good as them because I wanted to, to, to get their uh, recognition and their, you know, you know, acceptance, I guess. Right. And uh, so I always wanted to hang with them. And so if I was going to do that, I had to get, a, get to be as to good going. as them. So that was what, Jeff Judkins? Jeff Judkins is his brothers, Jerry and Jay. Yeah, And they were all competitive? All competitive and uh, very competitive. And, mm. uh, you know, it was Jeff was three years older. And uh, I looked up to Jeff big time. Mm. And, and he uh, he would drag me along to play with his age group or guys older and I just like oh I don't want to let Jeff down so it really pushed me yeah. to to uh even though I was younger to be as good as them and be accepted you had to hang had to hang man with right? the boys yeah. yeah and then Jeff went on to play in the NBA too right yeah but his two brothers did they play college ball they played anything? college ball Jay played at the University of Utah Jerry went to Dixie College hmm. uh but they were good athletes and everything hmm. and uh 
that was really a big driving force for me. So was there anybody like showing you ball handling skills, shooting skills, proper form and all that, or were you just kind of winging it? Did anybody like a mentor show up and say, okay, let me show you proper stance. Let me show you how to handle the ball. No, you let know what? Let me show you how to play defense. No, it really wasn't. I mean, it was more, I mean, you had little league coaches, yeah. you know, and you'd, you'd, uh, they'd, they'd work with you. But back in the day, they didn't really have basketball camps. Yeah. Kids go to camps all summer long now. Yeah. Pay big money for that. But yeah. it was just, uh, you know, watching it on TV or going up to the U, watching games, uh, watching high school games. I, w- I grew up in the, uh, even though I went to Skyline, I grew up in the, the Highland uh, area when I was young, and I never missed a, a high school game, you know, just wanted mm-hmm. to watch those kids play. So where did you learn your form throw from? Like, I mean, you had a nice shot, right? I know growing up I played baseball, basketball, football. At my age there was a few, you know, people in the, I guess, in the state or in the city that you go to and they, you know, teach you how to proper shot, proper follow through. Was that just all natural? Or no, did, I mean, did you obviously. actually get with somebody in college or high school that said, okay, Danny, let's – Well, I had some good, very work good – on your technique. Uh, I guess even even back to the little league days, I had uh, one of my coaches uh, was a guy by the name of Harold Christensen. Harold was a, a star college player at BYU. His boy was on our little league team, and that was he was a big deal back in the day. And he coached our our uh, our little league team for two or three years. And so obviously, you get good pointers. Junior high, uh, the Churchill Junior High School here in Salt Lake City. Uh, Bob Barrett and Ron Huber, great uh, fundamental coaches. Uh, so everybody along, you, you know, b- basketball isn't that complicated. And if you are shown the, they, this is the proper technique and, and uh, you go out and you do your drills, I mean, it's, it's uh, you know, there's always little tricks and this and that, but it's a pretty uh, uncomplicated sport, really. Yeah. Did you watch a lot of NBA games back in the day and try to emulate anybody, or did you just kind of do your own thing? You know, NBA games on TV were uh, maybe you get one game here or there, but, uh, you know, I remember watching uh, Abdul-Jabbar, Jerry West, uh, you know, those kind of guys. Um, I don't know if I really emulated any one of them, um, but uh, – as I mentioned before, I'd like to go out in the backyard and just play by myself, and I'd pre- pretend to be so and so on a different day, and yeah. and uh, whatever his moves were. I remember Jabbar, who's Lou Alcindor back in the day. Oh, I want to work, work on that sky hook yeah. thing. I want to work on this and that. So you had a small sky hook too. <laughs> More of a jump hook. Yeah, yeah, yeah. jump hook. Yeah, the sky yeah. hook was. Uh, that's a. That's a special uh, trait there. You really had to work on that. That was a, that was a, a move that, uh, for some reason, faded away. But is really, yeah. I, I'm surprised more people. It's unblockable, have right? Yeah, it really is. Yeah, yeah. it's kind of gone away. So, did you, um, after high school, uh, y- you considered going to Utah, BYU? Obviously, you were drafted by the Utes. But did you get a lot of other offers from other schools? I did. I was lucky enough to get. Offers. I mean, I went and did uh, visits. I went to uh, Duke. I went back east. Um, I might add a little funny story to that. Let's let's hear it. That's what we're here for, buddy. I want to hear the so stories. So, uh, in seventh grade, I moved into the Skyline uh, District boundaries. Moved in, and when we moved in, um, the neighborhood said, "Oh, by the way, the head coach of the University of Utah lives right across the street from you." And my mind has gone blank right now. But anyway, um, he lived across the street. Mm-hmm. Never saw him. I mean, the guy just drove his car in, out, never hung out with any neighbors, whatever. But my basket in our driveway faced his house. I mean, he had to be blind if he could never see me see uh, out in my driveway shooting and shooting and shooting. Anyway... Uh, he coached the U for, um, I, again, I wish I, I, I re- my mind's blank right now, but. His name? Yeah. It wasn't Pim. No, Pim's who I played for. Yeah, it was the guy before Pim. Before Pim. Yeah. Um, 
I'm not sure. We'll have to look it up. Somebody will remind. I can't believe I can't remember right now. But anyway, so he, at some point when I'm in seventh, eighth grade, probably probably uh, eighth or ninth grade, he takes a job and becomes the head coach at Duke before Mike Krzyzewski. Really? He gets back to Duke. Next thing you know, I get a letter from him when he's a coach at Duke and says – Bill, uh, what was his name? I can't remember his name. Anyway, I get a letter from him. Say, hey, we're interested in you coming to our school. Um, Archibald? Nope. Archibald was after Pim. Foster? Bill, Bill Foster. Foster. Bill Foster. There you go. Jack Gardner was before him. Uh-huh. So Jack Gardner and Bill Foster. Bill Foster's head coach at Duke. I go back on a recruiting <laughs> trip back to Duke. And tell me about, you know, I used to coach the University of Utah. Where did you live? No I looked way. at him and go, you are kidding me. <laughs> he goes, yeah, you went to Skyline. Where about did you grow up? I go, Bill, I lived right across the street. I was that little kid that was shooting. No way. He had no idea. He didn't have a clue. He didn't have a clue. You never even talked to him uh-uh. when he lived there. Uh-uh. Never had a conversation. Nope. Like I said, his car would pull into that garage, and that was it. Yeah, he was never outside mowing so, the lawn or doing yard work. I never saw him. Damn. Anyway, it was kind of funny. He was he about fell off his chair, but wow. Um, so Duke, who else? Then uh, I went back to Kentucky, mm-hmm. visited Kentucky, and uh, that was that was mind blowing to see. They had the kind of facilities their college that that university did for their athletes, like they do now. Wow, I mean, University of Utah's got world-class facilities. That's what Kentucky had back in the day, and they were winning wow. players over by, by – and that was you know, back in the yeah. late 70s. That was 70s, early 80s. Yeah. And then went to BYU and did a visit, and then I just you know, really decided I want to stay. I want to stay local. Yeah. And it, it didn't hurt that Jeff Judkins was at the U. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the family and playing with him, and yeah. that, was, that was too much to pass up on. Hard to beat, huh? Yeah. Uh, any regrets there on the decision at all? Not one bit. Nope. You loved it. Yeah. Yep. You were the man. I remember that. I was just a little kid, and Danny Vrange, Tom Chambers, man. There wasn't a kid in the state of Utah that didn't know those two names. Cool. So uh, uh, I remember Pim. Uh, there was a article in the paper that uh, he was sweating your BYU visit because you shook his hand and said, "Yeah, I'll play for you," but you know. Because it's expected, I got to go down to BYU and and show my face. So, I think you had Pim a little concerned that you might be going <laughs> to BYU, and you were uh, uh, an LDS member too, right? Yeah, so yeah. He was a little concerned. Do you remember him being concerned about your visit? Well, I mean, obviously, when you're you're being recruited, and back then they didn't have as many restrictions on how many times they could talk to a player, and you know, make you know, you only had so many official visits, but they could call you on the phone every day if they wanted or write you letters or so you spend a lot of time with these coaches that are recruiting you and and, uh so obviously they were a little nervous that I would go down to the Y and you know fall in love with it I had a high school teammate that was currently playing at the Y good friends were on the BYU's team and so who was your high school teammate Greg Anderson was his name he played at Skyline Uh, Scott Runia I became good friends with him uh he was a uh, went to West High and was a uh, turned out to be a really good player for the Y, hmm. um, you know. So they had some some talent, and obviously I'd I'd got to know the BYU coaches staff uh, well, and and uh, it was. Did Ainge play before or after you around same the same time. time? But he was from Oregon. Yeah, I didn't have I heard the name, but I didn't. You didn't know. Didn't know him. Hmm. No. That was a fun era, wasn't it? Yeah, it really was. You know, I didn't. I knew a lot of the the guys in, around the country that were the top players because I was able to go to a few all-star teams my senior year in high school, like the McDonald's All-American Games. And Even though Ainge was probably good enough to go to those, he was in baseball. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so as soon as sports. basketball season was over, he, he jutted right off to baseball. Yeah. So I never really got to know him, so I didn't have that connection. But, um, you know, they obviously, I, I knew he was going to go to yeah. BYU, but... And did you did you end up having a good relationship with him? Did you ever get to know him, or just played against him? I mean, we talk, you know. Yeah. 
you know, in the NBA, we'd say hi, how's it, you know, before the game, and but never hung out with him, no, never did anything. Never. Huh. And then what about when you went down to BYU to have your visit and check out the campus, did you actually sit with Marie Osmond? I did. How did you Was know that, that planned? Absolutely. Was it? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so, yeah, right on the front row there. The, that's what made Pim nervous. That's what I'm saying, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I remember that uh, um, they sat us right next to each other. Yeah. I think I, my parents were – I can't remember exactly who was all there, if, if her parents were there or, or what, or it was just the two of us just chatting away. And then she was obviously big time yeah. back then. So I was like, wow, this is way cool. But I remember <laughs> looking up in the stands, and there was a Utah assistant. Uh-huh. And he was just staring at me the whole game because <laughs> he was down there to scout the game yeah. or whatever. He was down and there I, scouting I didn't feel you. like I could smile or laugh too much with him <laughs> looking at me like, you know. He was down there making sure you didn't sign a contract, <laughs> didn't sign up with BYU. So did you talk with Marie Osmond all? Oh, yeah. Yeah? We chatted. I don't remember any specifics, but yeah. super nice. And yeah. Obviously, she ended up marrying a... BYU basketball player I got to know pretty well. So that's pretty interesting story. I think I found that in the archives. Little nugget there, huh? Yeah, I thought (laughs) that was hilarious. So you go to Utah, play with Chambers. How was playing with Chambers and all those guys? Didn't uh, didn't you guys used to tease each other all the time or do put hamburgers in each other's cars or something? We always joked around. We had too much fun when we were going to school. We always were practical jokers with all of the teammates. Some were innocent, fun little practical jokes. Others were stuff you probably couldn't mention. But uh, it was always one thing after another. Our team was really a free-spirited, fun uh, fun bunch of guys. But Tom and I, uh, we, we were probably the, the biggest instigators of some of the jokes. And, and some of the guys were probably... Uh, little less, uh, you know, able to, to get back at us because they didn't want to get in our, our, you know, bad side by any means. But we played a lot of good jokes on people and, uh, you know, put from in the shower, locker room, fill a guy's shoes up with water and put soap in it or, you know, filling their car full of trash when it was out in the parking <laughs> lot or... You know, just innocent things, but yeah. we would we would do that. We would get uh, hamburgers and whatever, and stick them under their seat in the back seat of their car, and they wouldn't know about it for weeks and weeks. <laughs> <laughs> the smell. So. so you didn't do it to each other as much, mostly the not so much to other each players. Other. We were pretty good to each other. We kind of it was us against. You know, we played most of the jokes on the other guys. Gotcha. And you, uh, any highlights from your career, that four year career at Utah that. Oh, you know, sure. you have a lot of great memories. I mean, the, 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 you have to remember back in the day, uh, the NCAA tournament was only 32 teams. So to get to the NCAA tournament was obviously way harder than it is today. And to think back that a couple of, during those five, four years, all four schools in the state of Utah would get to the NCAA tournament. That showed you how basketball, how big it was in the state back then. Weber State had a great team. Utah State had a great team. Some of the best competition we ever had was just playing in-state games. And, uh, I mean, that's pretty impressive. That's amazing. Yeah, it really is. And um, so we had a, like I said, basketball was everything. The Huntsman Center was always sold out. Uh, The Jazz were just kind of just barely starting. The Jazz were never a very good team in the early years. Mm-hmm. So we were the show. We were the big yeah. show in town. Yeah. And uh, so a lot of good memories. Uh, the Western Athletic Conference was an incredible conference. I mean, you say teams like Wyoming or Colorado State, and you think, oh, you know, that's nobody compared to the Pac-12. tell you, those games up in Wyoming and playing Colorado State, UTEP, those, mm-hmm. everybody had really, really good, good teams. teams. There was no slouches. So. Yeah. Uh, it was a great conference, and uh, just a lot of good memories, a lot of, a lot of disappointments. You know, we had that the one big game. If we would have come through, and we played North Carolina in the NCAA tournament on our home court, I mean, that's that's an opportunity we lost, and and uh, replay that game over and over and over again, and, really? and uh, 
Wish we had that one back for sure. Yeah. Uh, who played for North Carolina then? Do you remember? Who was the big guys? The big guys were James Worthy, uh, Al Wood, uh, Sam Perkins, uh, Dean Smith was a coach. Jordan uh, was a year away from coming to to North Carolina then, but they uh, went on and played in the final championship game. Mm. They ended up losing to Indiana that year, but uh, mm. we lost by five points in our home court. And wow. It was devastating. Well, your biggest loss of your career, do you believe? I do, yeah. yeah. I mean, we had some tough losses in state games and – miscellaneous games but that's the one that stands out for that's sure huh. um so you go through your college career and then you're getting drafted in the nba how, how do you go from college to nba like what was going through your mind when you're waiting to get drafted who's calling you what's going on how's the hype media yeah you know that it, again, it was different than it is today nowadays they have a combine uh coaches general managers they get all the players in a spot and kind of analyze and, and you kind of get a an idea that maybe you're going to be drafted in this you know category one through five or ten through twenty whatever you really didn't have a clue I mean teams didn't talk to you um, you know there was no reason for a team to call you if they drafted you they drafted you but they didn't have interviews they didn't so you, you knew the players were in the draft. And most back then, most all the players that were in the draft were seniors. Mm. Again, big difference. Mm. If you're a senior nowadays and you're, you haven't been drafted, something's wrong. You know, yeah. that means you're not – so it's always the freshmen or the sophomores who are getting drafted, high school kids. Mm-hmm. But uh, so I had an idea that based on a lot of these guys I knew, I thought, God, I should go in the top 15. I really should. Mm. But I was, I was somewhat surprised to go number five for sure. Really? Where were you when you got the news? <clears throat> I was back to, in New York. Oh, you were there? Yeah. So they invited the top, what they assumed to be the top 20 players, 25 players, something like that. And so I was back in New York, and that was a neat neat deal for sure to be up, you know, walk up on stage, shake the, shake the commissioner's hand, put the Sonic hat on. Uh, so it's pretty much kind of the same as far as the draft day. Yeah. You know, not as much media, whatever, but it was uh, it was it was a fun experience. Huh. And then, uh, do you remember? So you went in the first round, fifth pick. Do you remember what type of contract did you get back then? I mean, these contracts today are ridiculous. Oh man, if I'd have been you drafted today's, <laughs> you'd be laughing. I would be here today. I'd be <laughs> retired somewhere. But yeah, back in the day, it was. I mean. It's all relevant, you know, yeah. but but uh, it was a four-year contract, three hundred thousand dollars a year, yeah. which was good money back That's then. A lot of money, yeah, in the early eighties. Yeah, so um, a ton of money actually. Yeah, nowadays that would have been yeah. thirty, forty million, but yeah, hey, three hundred thousand dollars. I thought I had, yeah, I mean, I thought I was the richest kid in the you, world. You thought you hit the lottery, right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Wow. So, uh, if that were today. And you got a thirty or forty million dollar contract. Would you play in the NBA for three or four years and then check out, or would you play ten or twelve years? No, you'd. Once you started playing, it was you never thought about, you know, the money Anything part else. of it. Yeah. Everybody was making the money, so it was, you know, you're you're competing. You're competing for a job for uh, to help your team or just to. Mm-hmm. You just wanted to play as long as you could. And there was never any thought of, of. Uh, you know, checking out or retirement or whatever. Yeah. So did you immediately move to Seattle? Yeah. How long after the draft? Um, so the draft was in June. So probably I, we probably, my wife and I, we had a child at the time. We probably were up there by mid-August, something like that. Yeah. What was your wife's name at the time? Linda. Linda. Uh-huh. So you had, how old was your child? Amy would have been... Three or four years old, huh. at that time. Wow! So you you got a you had a child when you were late teens. Saw freshman year. Yeah. Freshman year. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. It's a lot to take on, wife, kids. Yeah, yeah. We right, were right off the get go. We, we you didn't uh, mess around. <laughs> I got right after my high school sweetheart. <laughs> yeah, and uh, lived in student housing, and you know went through all that 
those poor years of grinding it out. And yeah. back in the day, they they gave you hundred twenty five, hundred thirty five dollars a month to subsidize your family. So in college, yeah, damn, yeah, that's not a lot. So you had to work work summers, and the wife would work and go to school, and you know that. that Makes you appreciate the good times for sure. So, did you had Amy? Did you have kids right after her with Linda, or did uh-huh. you just have Amy? Yeah, we had another child uh, two years later, and then uh, we had three children together. And what were their names? Amy, Amy, Danielle, and Nathan. Yeah, cool. Yeah. Then you had another child sixteen I, years ago, right? So what, yeah, four or five total. I had four total kids. We got yeah. remarried, and then uh, we had a uh, child together, and he is now sixteen. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, he was born right around the same time my oldest. Oh yeah, Sophie was born. So uh, you go on to play in the NBA and uh, uh, play for Seattle, play for the uh, Philadelphia Seventy Sixers. How was the family life and trying to juggle all that back in the day? It was tough. Yeah, it really was. It was. Uh, you know, you, you look back at the time, you, you're going, "Oh my gosh, why well, could." Uh, can't my wife be more understanding? You know, how, yeah. what, this should be such an opportunity for her, and you yeah. know, she's got money. We've got, we, you know, we don't have those kind of worries. What? what why is there so, so much stress in our relationship? But now, mm-hmm. looking back at that, you go, wow. You know what? That that was so hard for her to basically take care of all the kids yeah. and live in the shadows. I mean, not be able to have your own life. She was yeah. so young; she yeah. didn't have a chance to grow up. She went right from high school to raising kids and moving out of state. And yeah. Who's to say that was her dream or her life? She wanted. Right, yeah. She didn't have a choice either, no, right? No, It's like, we're going. <laughs> we're going, no choice. <laughs> yeah. And I really look back and go, you know, I was selfish and, and uh, uh, you know, it just, it's got to be very difficult to, uh, had to have been very difficult for her. Yeah, for it sure. It was, yeah. Yeah, you kind of uproot somebody from their surroundings and their home, and they got to go make a new life, make new friends. Yeah. Raise kids on their own, can't run to grandma or grandpa's no, for help. Right? Exactly. And I'm out gallivanting around the country playing ball. And, yeah. You know, on TV and in the limelight <laughs> and da da da. You know, she's home with the grind with the yeah. kids, and, and it's tough. I, yeah. I, yeah. It had to be really hard for her. I'm sure. Uh, so, how was your career? Tell us a little bit about the NBA career. Well, you know, I it didn't, uh, you know, look back, uh, you know, it's not what I had anticipated. Uh, there could be a lot of reasons, whatever, but, you know, it's just I never got in a system. And it, it really it's it's how you, what system, what co- coaches, what, what works for certain players. And there's so many talented guys in the league it's not like coaches that the you know they take the best players they have and they go okay we got to work we you know we're going to make you a good player. Um, you, know, you got to find your own way, or they'll just bring somebody else in, or draft somebody else, or this or that. And I'm more of a guy that I mean I'll I'll, I'll you know go to my grave fighting for you and, and playing as hard as I can, but just give me a little you know guide. I didn't feel that that uh, my situation in Seattle was the best for me mm-hmm. and uh, but to, to get playing time you know I had to find a way to get on the court and that's when I kind of changed my game a little bit to be more of a defensive player back in the NBA during those times the small forward positions what I ended up playing that's where all the the big studs were were uh, were playing at Adrian Dantley uh, Larry Bird um, Magic Johnson, Alex English. I mean, you could go down the list of the top scorers in the league at that time, and 90% of them were all small forwards. So to to get earn my my way on the team, and I started for three seasons there in Seattle, was just to to go in there and be try to be a defensive stopper. Mm. And so my game evolved, um, and it, it was challenging at times. It really was. And then I got traded to Philadelphia and uh, went back and you know it was it was it was even tougher to try to play behind somebody the caliber of a Barkley Julius serving my first year Barkley for two years to get much playing time at all and you know it was it was a fun two years but I really didn't develop much and get much time there actually yeah 
Tell us a little bit about Barkley or, or Jordan. I know you played uh, with Barkley and against Jordan. Like, what, what's, you know, my wife loves Charles Barkley. She wants to hear some Charles Barkley <laughs> stories. You know what? He is one. He is the biggest character in person as he is on TV. I mean, he oh. just is, he, he's himself. Yeah. And he is, uh, it's interesting. I, I like his commentaries. I love listening to him on TV. Uh, same guy I knew and loved, but you know what? He's full of it sometimes yeah. when he talks about players and and uh, how hard they need to work and this and that. Charles was the kind of guy that, that didn't have to practice hard. Sure. He didn't. He uh, he knew he could just step in the, on on the court in a game, mm-hmm. and he could perform to the best of his ability. Yeah. But he didn't make anybody else around him better, and that was the, that was the, the negative that I have on Charles. Would show up to practice always late. Uh, half the times he didn't even tie his shoes. And you talk about a guy <laughs> that just went through the motions. Really. He was a, you know, he played so hard in the games. Don't, yeah. you know, get me wrong. Nobody played harder, Charles, during the game. But I think, and that's what Julius Irving's beef was, because Julius and Charles played together. That's when I came in was Julius Irving's last year, and I just Irving was wanted to go out with a bang. This is last season. He's retiring. He's on the retirement tour. He wanted to. You know, he wanted to have a good season, and Charles just would not practice hard. And Julius was constantly, you know, on him for, mm. we got to make this team better. You know, we if you're not practicing hard, how are we going to get better as a team? And, mm. You know, he just didn't have that. So uh, even though they were good friends, I don't think Doc had a lot of respect for, for Charles in, in those terms. And uh, we went to the playoffs in Philadelphia, whatnot, but, you know, um, Charles could go be an all-star. He could lead the league in rebounding. But the team, because you didn't practice hard, because your star, your leader, wasn't a motivator in practice, that's how you develop the other guys around you. And uh, so I think that's where Charles was, you know, you hear him talking on TV about this and that, and go, man, dude, you remember when you were on, you know. But he is is hilarious. He is funny. He's genuine, super generous. Um, but back in the day, him and I were really, really good friends, and uh, we hung out a lot together. And I'm not sure what the reason was that why that was, but we 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 just hung out a lot. And I remember he uh, his big trick that he would do was in Philadelphia the the players parked underground at the stadium, and Charles had this black Mercedes and super super dark tinted windows, and everybody knew Charles' car. I mean, his license plate was personalized. So he'd drive out of that parking lot, and everybody was just, you know, pounding on the car. People would follow him because he'd want to go to a restaurant or whatever. So Charles, Charles, I go, Vrains, take my car again. <laughs> so I'd, I'd give him my, uh, my uh, what did I have? I had a, oh, dang, a Riviera. Had a Riviera, nice, nice Riviera, but it was a Riviera. It wasn't mm-hmm. a nice Mercedes Benz. So, I <laughs> would Charles would give me the keys and I'd take off in his car. People thought I was it because it was so dark windows. Yeah. I'd take off and people were following me to the restaurant. <laughs> oh my gosh, Barkley! I'd open the door and it, where's Charles? <laughs> I don't. I have no idea. <laughs> He'd sneak out the other way with my little Riviera. It was hilarious. It was that bad, though. It was. It was bad. The fans oh. were. They're. They're. You know. They don't. They didn't have the social media there. There. So yeah. the only contact they had, to, uh, athlete or whatever, was to meet him after the yeah. game, after Chase practice, or follow him to a restaurant or a club or whatever. So that's a neat story. That's amazing. What about playing against Jordan? You know what? He was uh, – you knew he was great the minute he came in the league. Uh, he, he didn't uh, – he didn't maybe dominate. Obviously, he was being his rookie year, but he, as soon as he came in, he changed the game. Um, he just he just elevated that team he was on, and he just – he had so much ability. He was Dr. J, a smaller Dr. J in his prime, and – we had a lot of good players in the NBA, but nobody had that flash, that charisma, that 
that uh, stuff that Jordan brought. So I was only in the league for one or two years when Jordan got in. But uh, I think everybody tells me, because I'm not a computer guy or YouTube or Facebook, people tell me they go to YouTube or look me up. First thing they see is a picture of Jordan Duncan on me. Yeah, so, I saw it last night. Did you? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so, I mean, the guy just, uh, he, he lit everybody yeah, up. And he, so you, yeah, he, he kind of crossed you over and then hammer dunked it. Yeah. Do you even remember the play? I kind of do. I think do I believe I do. But uh, I do remember, though, I switched off on him. He's not my yeah. guy. And yeah. I was like, I was trying to help somebody else out. And okay. I got stuck in the frame, getting yeah. dunked on. That was going to be my next question. Was you actually <laughs> guarding him? No. He wasn't your man. He was He was a two guard. Yeah. So I rarely guarded him. But, mm-hmm. uh, you know, unless it was, like you say, a switch or something. Mm-hmm. But. Who was your favorite player in the NBA? When you look back on it all, who did you uh, maybe look up to or appreciate? During the time I was playing? Yeah. You know, Larry Bird was, uh, you know, such a smart um, player that took what tools he had and maximized them probably better than anybody. Um, You know, he was tall, obviously, but certainly not quick, certainly couldn't jump. Um, And he really, he... He had a mind. He had a he had a the ability to just be so confident in his own mind that he could dominate a game. And you look at the guy and go, "There's no way this guy can be that good." Uh, mm-hmm. So he was he was really somebody you looked up to. Um, he could shoot it too. Oh man, he could shoot. And he had it. that high release that you couldn't get to, right? Yeah, tough to block his shot, but uh, you know you could play physical with him. Uh, the only way to really stop any of those really good, talented guys was not to let them get the ball. Mm. The biggest thing I don't understand in, in in basketball to this day is when you're trying to stop somebody, why they don't do a better job of not letting yeah. them catch the ball. Denying They're not the going to score if they don't get the ball. That's, NBA's changed. Uh, it's changed, but even college, changed. I see the guys, they, they don't deny enough, in my opinion, yeah. They try to play defense after the fact, and mm-hmm. the first, I mean, if I'm guarding Larry Bird, I'm guarding him full court. I don't mm-hmm. ever want him to even get a chance to get the ball. My right. job is so much harder once he's got it in his hand. You're like me, Danny. I think defense creates offense, so the better D you play, the better you know, offensive game you're going to have. But, yeah, they don't, denying human players the ball doesn't even exist anymore. No, no, they all – and it's – the players are so talented – with their, I mean, the, the skill set they have now mm-hmm. is way beyond the individual skill set they have. It's incredible. And to try mm-hmm. to stop somebody after they've got the ball, you give James Harden the ball now. It's impossible. Why do you do everything in the world to not let him get it? Yeah. That's, that's, that's the only way to, to stop him, yeah. right? Yeah, and the guys don't work hard enough on that part of it. And that, yeah. was, that was, I think, why I was successful defensively is uh, – they didn't, I didn't take a second off playing defense. Yeah. I, I might have slacked up. My offensive game might not have been where it should be, but when I got on that defensive end, those guys weren't going to score. Yeah. And uh, at least you're never going to shut anybody down, but it made it really hard. And I took pride in holding players below their average. And uh, I believe one or two years, five guys – would get, got their average or higher on me in the entire season. Mm. So I took a lot of pride in that. Mm. And uh, But wow. that's just uh, just my philosophy on it. Yeah. Love it. Uh, so who was your least favorite player in the NBA while you were playing? You know, a guy that you'd probably want as your teammate, but a guy that I thought was, was, uh, was dirty – uh, playing against, I thought he would, he would just soon hurt somebody as as not, and that was getting Bill Lambeer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what? The guy it just came across like, who me? Did I foul? Did I touch you? I saw him between elbows, purposefully throwing guys down and and trying to pretend that he didn't do it or it was an accident. I mean, really hurt guys. Yeah. I just thought he was a cheap shot, low life. Yeah. Kind of guy that would uh, 
kind of the sneaky little guy that would try to cheat his way to get something. Mm-hmm. I'm sure he was a great teammate. Yeah. I'm sure he's a great guy. Right. But on the court, I thought he was a he was a cheap yeah. shot. Cheap shot, huh? Played for Detroit Pistons, uh-huh. right? Uh huh. With Isaiah Thomas and yeah, and Bill uh-huh. Ambeer or uh, uh, Rick Mahorn. Yeah, Mahorn. Uh, Rodman came in later. Yeah. Wow. Cool. Fun. So you finished up your NBA career, then decided to go for a little bit more money over in Greece and Italy, right? Yeah. What happened kind is of- after. My uh, second year at Philadelphia, um, I was a free agent. And the NBA was obviously, you know, you can make good money, but it was when Europe uh, was starting to really try to, to get good players over there. They're trying to develop that European league. They had had some uh, success in bringing some NBA or ex-NBA guys over to Europe, and the, their attendance picked up. So that it was a really a push to get good talent over to Europe. So I d- had no in, no uh, thought at all about going to Europe. I had only played in the NBA seven years. and You know, I was going to keep playing in the NBA. You know, I knew I had a lot of good years left. You know, maybe down the road, maybe after 12 years, maybe thinking about going to Europe. But um, my agent gives me a call and goes, uh, you know, you're a free agent. We'd like to think you could be make X amount of dollars, but I just got a call from Greece, Athens, Greece, and they are willing to offer you a three-year contract at X amount of dollars. I was like, what? No way. He goes, yeah. They, go, they want to fly you and your wife over there in the summer and take a look and, and uh, you know, go through, through everything that you would have available to you from get you a house to live in, cars, schooling for your kids, private school for your kids, all these perks that don't come in the NBA and, you know, live right on the ocean in Athens. Oh, my gosh. So, whoa, we got to go check it out. So flying over there with my wife to go check it out, get to the airport, who greets us? But a lot of people in Utah would know uh, this guy's name because he played at BYU and he was a legend. Mm-hmm. An international star, Kreshmer Chosich. Mm-hmm. Kreshmer was the coach of our team. And he's the one that wanted me on the team and, and told the, the Greek owners that, you know, throw Vrains all this money. He's the kind of player I want on our team. Mm-hmm. He's a guy you trusted, too. The guy right? I trusted. You know, Kreshmer Chosich, what a, what a good guy. And so my wife and I were just wined and dined. They drove us around. They pointed to a house, said, this is the house you'll live in. Right in this, right off the ocean. I mean, Mercedes was in the driveway. Uh, you know, I mean, the money was almost double what I would, get, would have gotten possibly in the NBA. And that's when you really go, you know what? This is a, this is a business. This is a career. This is why, yeah, we love, I love playing ball, but... You know, I want to make the most of it financially. You know, that's, you know, why we're here to do this is a business. So we decided to sign that contract and go over to Greece. Hmm. And how'd that treat you? <laughs> that's your next question. <laughs> <laughs> I knew that was coming. Well, let's just say that uh, all the promises, uh, the paper that contract was written on wasn't worth uh, nothing. They get you over there, and uh, totally different story. Yeah, put you in a little uh, hotel for the first couple of weeks, and then an apartment. While the whole time they're saying, "Oh, the, we're remodeling your house. We want to make sure the house is just perfect for you, so we're remodeling that. Just stay in this little apartment for a while." Car. Both wife, wife and I were supposed to have Mercedes. Had a little Nissan Cherry. It was called one car. Two door, I could barely squeeze in that same thing. <laughs> oh, the car's in the shop. Oh, it's getting worked on. We, uh, it'd just be another couple of weeks. Wow. First time I was supposed to get my money. I mean, I'd got, got a, uh, a little bit of money up front just to, you know, once you a bonus to sign. But then as your monthly paycheck came in, uh, little something a little different. 
I mm. uh, found out when I got was going over there that in Greece at the time, a lot of countries were like that, you could never have more money in your bank account, U.S. dollars. And that's what the contracts were. You, you got paid in U.S. dollars. You didn't want to get paid in Greek drachma or mm. you know Italian lira back in the day. You wanted U.S. dollars. Well, Greece had this law that you couldn't have more U.S. dollars in your bank account than you brought into the country originally. Wow. Well, I came into the country with $1,000. I don't know. You know yeah. Nothing. nothing. I'm going to get paid over there. Right. Well, now I can't put the U.S. dollars in the bank. So my first, I'm going, well, can't we set something up? Oh, yeah, you could set up an account to go have it go to Switzerland. Well, nobody told us that. So I had to leave the country to go set up an account in Switzerland. But in the meantime, I had some money due to me. So my first uh, day, to, my first payday, they, uh, after practice, the uh, uh, general manager of the team said, hey, uh, Vrange, meet me, meet me behind the gym. I need to talk to you. Meet me behind the gym. You walk out of the gym, the gyms in Greece are, I mean, terrible, terrible. You're in this little skid row street, and the general manager walked up to me with a canvas bag, and it said bananas on the outside of it. And goes, here, here you go. Look inside. Underneath the bananas is a stack of uh, cash. Here's your, here's your payment. Wow. Holy cow, I'm getting paid in cash. Like it's a drug deal or something. <laughs> right? Back streets, taking a bag, banana bag full of cash. The problem is, what do you do with it? Yeah. So you can't put it in the bank. And you can't travel out of the country with with, with more money that you brought into the country. So I had to figure a way to get this money to Switzerland, to get an account set up so they could now start wiring money. But a long story that could really we could really talk for hours. Um, basically, I had to set up a flight on a day off of practice, a fly to Switzerland, smuggle out my money. I, I really I felt like a drug really? dealer smuggle out my money, go to uh, Switzerland, set up an account. Next time, uh, next month, it was time to get paid. They paid me the same way, same in, way. In, in cash. I always, I set up an account. You're supposed to wire the money. Well, the wiring and things didn't work, da-da-da-da-da. We, we can't wire the money. Uh, here's your cash again. So in the meantime, you know, you're practicing, you're playing, you're, you don't have time to run to Switzerland to deposit your money, so yeah. you've got all this cash under your pillow in your apartment. Wow, and you're worried about that probably, right? Yeah, and it's like the, so now after a couple of months, that gets you know you're worried and people. It just yeah. wasn't wasn't how much cool. cash were they giving you each week or month? No, every month it was like twenty thousand dollars or something. Yeah. So it wasn't yeah. a ton of money, but, but still most of it came uh, at the beginning of the season, the end of the season, but. These, maybe it was every two weeks, like $20,000 or something. But I'm sure you're concerned, right? Very concerned. Having it in your house, you're going to get robbed or whatever, <laughs> yeah, right? Exactly. So anyway, uh, that was actually the, the best times. That was the good times really? of the, the Greek experience. Then is when things get interesting. The team uh, you know, thought that they would get a great coach, get a good NBA player, and they'd be able to compete among with all the great European teams over there. But it's all about if you only have one American player or one NBA, you know, you can only be as good as you know the locals. And yeah, the rest of the players are local, nationalized. We we had great guys, but they just weren't very good. No offense, they just weren't. I mean, we weren't even close. I mean, we weren't even. Uh, you know, really, we, we were competitive, but we really weren't even close to these good, powerful teams. And we're talking these European teams that have guys by the name of Sabonis in Russia and, uh, uh, you know, Menegin from Italy and Oscar Schmidt from Brazil. I mean, we're playing in these leagues that, I mean, these, these teams are awesome. So it was kind of a hard lesson to think, okay, well, we're not going to be that competitive well, the owners stopped paying their players. So this is when it gets interesting is when 
you're not getting your money. And you're going, oh, my gosh, what? You hear these horror stories about this, but, you know, and it's always an excuse. Oh, yeah, the, the bank was closed today or this or that or, you know. So now you're going one, two, three weeks in between. Your, and then you'd get maybe a quarter of your money or you'd get, you know, or here's a here's a gift certificate to a restaurant. Go enjoy yourself. Well, the money will be here tomorrow or they'd give you a check that would bounce. You know, they didn't give you a check very often because you couldn't put it in the bank, but they'd pay you and try to pay you in Greek drachmas with a check and try to deposit that and that would bounce. So the, the real eye-opener was when, uh, when uh, we get a call. We have our kids. We had uh, three kids at the time and we were in a private school that was paid for by the team. So the kids are in a school over there, American uh, English speaking school. Get a call from the principal and said, Mr. Vrains, um, we need to let you know that we're going to have to uh, send your kids home. Oh, what's the problem? Well, their, their tuition's not being paid. Wait a minute, what? The kids' tuition's not being No, your team hasn't made one payment all year long on it. They keep giving us a bunch of excuses, but so we're going to have to send your kids home. Well, that's, there's not a lot of English-speaking schools over there that are affordable. So if I wanted, I've got to pay for, you know, obviously I would did that for a while, but this is uh, weird. Okay, go to the team. Why aren't you paying my, the school's education? Like you promised, like it's in my contract. Sorry, uh, we'll, we'll take care of that. Then we're sitting home one evening. All of a sudden, the lights go off. No big deal. Power's out. You figure that you know, it happens quite a bit over there. No big. Wait a minute. The neighbor's lights are on. <laughs> Everybody else's lights are on. What's going on? <laughs> Call the power company the next day. And it's not easy being in a different country yeah. when you're trying to speak you know, Greek of all things. Uh, your bill hasn't been paid. Oh, oh man, jeez! Oh my gosh! What the, I mean, the team's supposed to take care of all these things. A lot of things we take for granted. You know that was part of the perks. Yeah. You know here you pay your own utility bills, no big deal. But so nothing was getting paid. Then this, like the third day from that, our car got repossessed. Our little Nissan Cherry Damn. got re repossessed. So, I mean, kids in school, apartments not be. I mean, what do you do? I mean, this thing has fallen apart. So um, at that point, we decided to send the wife and kids home. I mean, yeah. This is no place for them. Um, and then you stay over there, and you hope that you can uh, collect your money. And it was one excuse after another, but the only thing a player can do is not play. Mm -hmm. I mean, the only leverage you have is to say, okay, I'm not going to play in this game. Mm -hmm. Well... It's pretty embarrassing. These owners over there, they don't want the fans to think they're not paying. Mm -hmm. These owners are not only the owners of a team. They're owners of uh, uh, it's, it, there are clubs over there. These mm -hmm. clubs are hundreds of years old. And it's like you belong to the, you know, a club as a district, as an area, your grandparents, your great-grandparents, people would go to these clubs for their whole families. Uh, from growing up as little kids, you'd go to the club and play, uh, go, you know, to the park, or your, your family was affiliated with a certain club. Mm -hmm. And so that's how it is. If you're an owner of a club, you're in charge of the soccer, professional soccer team, the Little League uh, stuff, the community stuff. The, I mean, it's a major, major deal to be a president and owner of one of these clubs. So you don't want people thinking you're not paying your bills and your players or this or that. It's just a bad, you know, bad uh, sign. You know, you don't want, so they would have to make up excuses that, uh, oh, you know, in the paper all the time that something was wrong and the player will get paid, don't worry, da-da-da-da. But when it came game time, that's when you really had leverage. And if you threatened not to play a game, you know, they, that would really be bad uh, look for the owners. So they would, uh, you know, make excuses. Oh, we'll give you all the money from uh, ticket sales tonight. You know, you play the game in, 
everything over the ticket sales will give you that. Of course, you'd play the game, and that didn't work. Nothing, nothing. They wouldn't give you anything. So, finally, towards the end, a couple months had gone by. The other players on the team weren't getting paid. The coach wasn't getting played. Everybody was thinking, "Okay, we're just you know, either going to quit the team, the team's going to fold, or what are we going to do?" And Kresmer Chosich, I, I commend him. He said, "You know what? I'm going to I'm going to coach no matter what. If you guys are here, if you guys want to play." I'll coach you. The other players uh, that were on the team, the Greek players, they didn't have anywhere to go. They didn't have any jobs, so they stuck it out. But you know, as, a, as an American player, the only thing you can do is is to, to threaten and leverage. That's why you're there is to get paid. So the biggest rivalry game was a team called Panathinaikos, uh, or excuse me, Olympiakos. We, my team was Ayak. And the biggest rival was Olympiakos, and they were another Athens team. Then this thing's huge. These people, fans, you know, they start going to the arena the day before the game. It's only like 6,000-seat arenas. They are wild, ravenous fans that this game means everything to them. Mm. And I tell them, I am not playing. (laughs) You guys owe me all this money? I am not playing. Uh, Do not worry about it. I'm, I'm, in fact, I'm going to catch a plane. I'm out of here. So they've got to come up with some way to convince me to stay, right? Sure. Well, they don't have the money. They're not going to pay me. So what do they do? I'd become friends with somebody over in Greek, a, a guy that happened to speak English, lived around the apartment I lived in. He was a Greek-American, actually studied in uh, the United States. Became friends with him and his wife, and you know, super nice guy. Next thing you know, I'm visiting him over at his house. I think it was his office, actually. He was in his office. And um, all of a sudden, the doors break open, and here is my owner and his bodyguards. Run in, one bodyguard holds me back, and the other one starts pounding on my friend. Beating the hell out Beating of him? Beating the hell out of him. You know, we're just there, this violent screaming and yelling. What are you doing? What are you doing? What's going on? Vrain, you will not ever see this guy again. His family will never see him again unless you play the game. Damn. I go, well, you got to be kidding me. It has gone to this. Hey, listeners. Uh, hope you enjoyed part one of uh, Danny Vrain's podcast. This is an amazing human being. Uh, somebody I uh, aspire to be like. He's gentle, passionate, and uh, one of the kindest builders that I dealt with over my uh, 18-year construction career. And I also want to really tell you guys, hey, thanks for listening up. The podcast is really starting to move. It's getting popular, and I appreciate all you guys sharing. But honestly, I want to thank you just for taking the time to listen and to slow down and... uh, Give yourself an hour to, you know, listen to another human being's story and hopefully uh, you can learn and pick up some neat information from uh, some of these podcasts. But I really I really want to do thank you for uh, taking time out of your busy life. It means uh, a whole lot to me. Uh, I'm going to share an exercise with you guys today uh, since we wrapped up part one. Um, I want you to consider your uh, most recent stressful thought or the most recent stressful situation you've been in. Maybe even go back a year or two if needed. And I want you to write down when you believe that thought, write down your stressful thought and then write that thought down. And then write the question, um, who are you when you believe that thought? And I want you to find at least 10 or 15 Um, examples of who you are when you're believing that thought and write down those 10 or 15 emotions, okay? And then after you do that, sit in it for a minute or so and then look at your stressful thought that you wrote down, um, whatever that situation was, and then consider who would you be without that thought. And then I want you to write down 10 or 15 emotions um, that show up for you, you and who would you be without the thought 
um, that this stressful event occurred. Try that on for size, and then if you want to go a little deeper, you definitely can contact me. Um, And here again, I appreciate all you guys listening. This is uh, the Minds Gym Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this part one of Danny Vrains, and if you enjoyed part one, part two is amazing. This guy's story and, uh, and his experience over in Greece is incredible. So thanks again. If you want to contact me, you can reach me at uh, themindsgym at gmail.com. And have a beautiful day, everyone, and peace out. Slow